Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, and Pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So once again, another week of Chronicles and Kings. And so um, this Solomon time we reversed from building, last week. Building the temple. Yeah, there's a lot of temple building going on. And as Chronicles notes, uh, as you will continue to read in Chronicles, Chronicles loves talking about the temple. Um, and there's a good reason, because they're the people that are trying to rebuild a temple. And so um, we continue to hear about Solomon building this temple. and. Uh, he's at Mount Moriah. Uh, there's some debates on exactly where this is, but uh, if it is the Moriah from uh, the uh, Abraham, Abraham story, like that's that's pretty significant. Um, there's definitely some some pretty um, significant tie-ins to how that story would reflect and sacrifice and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think there is a historical connection to David, of course, but then ultimately this Messiah. So Mount Moriah is where Abraham offered Isaac to God. And I think that can foreshadow uh, the offering of Christ for our sins. So yeah. we see a picture of what is to come. Yep. And and there's a lot of details. Solomon seems to have a thing for gold. There's gold everywhere. They're even using nails of gold, uh, which for a soft metal, that's probably not the best idea, but then that's what they're using. There's all sorts of angels throughout space. There's a, a huge couple huge pillars out in front. And it's important to note uh, the building of the temple, the building of the tabernacle. Like there's, there's supposed to be sort of these echoes back to Eden in both those constructions. Um, in nature, things that they include, even the existence of angels. This is where God dwells. So mm-hmm. there's always that picture of of like remembering the time when God dwelt with Adam and Eve, remembering the garden, remembering peace and shalom and all those kind of things that these the architecture is meant to convey for his people. Yeah. And so there's furnishings. They, they put the tabernacle pieces in there. Uh, they're just a little more grandiose than the first time around, um, but they're still there, whether it's the the showbread table, whether it's the, the candelabra or the menorah, whatever you want to call it. Um, all of that's there. Yeah, but what's left out of this is Solomon's house plans yeah. and building. So note the difference in that. And then hundreds of year, years later, and even the intention of the authors, it wasn't worth including that part in Chronicles. Yeah. Well, they don't have a Solomon at this time. And so right. uh, there's no king necessarily to, to, to build this house. And so they're just focused on the temple and rebuilding the temple. And so, so they bring the, the ark into the temple. Yep. Yeah, the Levites bring it in, the right crowd, which is great. That's their job. Take care of that. Um, and then the musicians break out in the song, which uh, once again, we always see uh, David and Solomon conscript or uh, enlist these musicians to, to do their work. And so, um, and God, once again, puts his stamp on this. He fills, he fills the temple. Yeah. I really like how the song that they sing is about God's goodness and God's enduring steadfast love. Uh, There's so many different things they could have chosen to sing about with characters of God as justice, as holiness. But when we understand that God is good and that his steadfast love is enduring, everything else I think kind of comes together. And so if, if we fail to believe in God's goodness or in God's love or in God's eternality, I think we will lose sight of what is really true about God. So I like how they started that way, uh, thinking about and dwelling on those specific aspects of God's character. And they're good things for us to dwell on as well. Yeah. Um, and then Solomon, <laughs> it's just an odd line to me where he says, the Lord has said, uh, God will dwell in a cloud, but I have built him a house. Like, and I don't know how I always feel about when the Lord said something. And then the next line is, but I have done something. Um, it's, it's a little bit of tension to me, but, uh, there's sort of this idea where Solomon's like, uh, this will be a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, these are the exiles who have know that 
God had left the temple in their history and that it had been destroyed and needed to be rebuilt and all this kind of stuff. And so I don't know how they would hear that line, these sort of statements by Solomon uh, about God's permanent resonance here forever. Um, so there's a little bit of tension, like just trying to think through, all right, how, how would you hear that knowing he didn't actually stay there forever? Um, but anyways... It's the difficulty of reading these out of the chronological order and mm-hmm. reading Kings and Chronicles together is normally Chronicles would be long after you would have just read tons and tons of history and prophets speaking about uh, um, being being in Babylon, the destruction of the temple, all these kind of things before you would get to Chronicles. And so uh, then you'd pick up Chronicles and be like, okay, like Solomon's little dedication here feels a little bit odd now that we knew this temple doesn't last. And so- yeah. yeah. But I do think it's it's a highlight in Israel's history and even the chronicler sees that and points it out. You know, God has fulfilled his promise to establish his name. There's a permanent place of worship for Israel. They have peace and the line of David is continuing. I mean, honestly, it couldn't get better than this, but of course we know it does. Yeah. And Solomon uh, has a prayer of dedication again. Uh, in some ways there's definitely a repeating of of previous prayers, but um he definitely does it um remembering who God is as sort of almost a, the opening disclaimer. Yeah, focusing really on the person and character of God and the holiness of God and God's goodness, his presence, his steadfast love, like we just talked about. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we jumped to First Kings. Uh, and so now we're jumping back in time, but forward in the story. Um, and sort of the Lord appears to Solomon, but uh, appears and gives him a, a pretty stern warning in yeah. some ways, saying, walk in my ways and you'll dwell here forever. But if you don't, I'm going to destroy this temple and this thing's coming down. And so, um, which is just a foreshadowing of the temple that will be destroyed. And so, yeah. Yeah. And it means that as we read, when all of this happens, we're not going to be surprised. Yeah. And, and even the promise of like, your sons need to do this too, because his sons are not going to do it. Um, I mean, Solomon's going to struggle with it, but even more so Solomon's lineage is just going to go haywire. And so uh, it's going to be a struggle. And then we get a little bit of almost an interlude to say like, well, Solomon did some other things too. Uh, and this King of Tyre who had provided like all this cedar and all this stuff for, for Solomon's temple, four and a half tons of gold for this temple, um, ends up getting the cities and he kind of feels ripped off by Solomon in the story. And so, yeah, it's like, it seemed like Solomon was going to be blessing the nations, but all this nation feels like is that they were ripped off by Solomon at the end. So I don't, I don't know how I should feel about the blessing of, of the King of Tyre. Um, and we're yeah. left with Solomon kind of building his kind of empire here in Jerusalem, that, that there's foreigners that are doing the labor. Um, he's built these palaces. He's built storehouses, which is exactly what Israel was building in Egypt. Um, there's fortifications. There's even ships. He even has like a, 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 a marine part of who Israel is, which was like the only time Israel are, have uh, ships, particularly in the Mediterranean. So like it's a, it's a unique time. Yes, like – it's prosperous, but but it also leads me with a little bit of suspicion towards what is really being built in Israel. Yeah, I mean, this section, I think we do. We see Solomon's alliance with the king of Tyre. We see his connection with Egypt, and we see the slave labor he's using. And not only that, but they are commenting on the amount of gold he has, which is probably a direct reference back to Deuteronomy 17 that talks about how a king should not accumulate wealth. So we are starting to see him kind of turn into pursuing his own gain rather than God's glory. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely... Um, a bit of me that feels like I, I think Solomon has a little bit of the, the right motives. Like I think he does want God's name to be made great, particularly to all the nations around, but his means method 
is similar to other countries, which is like, let me build the most extravagant building. Let me um, create wealth and might and power. And we'll have this, these boats and this trade and this army and all this kind of stuff. And, and he's doing it on those terms. And, and I think it causes some trouble for him as he goes, because it's just not, it, if our God is counter uh, intuitive, wholly distinct from the nations, then this method of building an empire, um, it can be problematic. Yeah. So let's jump to the New Testament where we start into Second Corinthians, which is either the third or the fourth letter from Paul. We just don't call it Third Corinthians and Fourth Corinthians or anything like that. But um, just know Paul has multiple letters going on between uh, him and this church. And he deals with a lot of kind of comparing, contrasting ideas, whether it's conversations around like power and success and glory and authority versus humility and suffering and some of these kind of the ideas. Um, and, and Paul Paul feels like there's always this tension with this church where he has to defend himself. He has to um, make sure that they understand that he really is an apostle. He's not trying to manipulate them, that there's some sort of accusations going on amongst the Corinthians or people are convincing these Corinthians that Paul's not really somebody to really follow. And Paul has to deal with that throughout this letter. Yeah, I think this letter is structured differently than Paul's other letters that we've read, which usually comes in with him creating some sort of like academic theological argument, which culminates into him talking about how we live outside of that. And Paul seems to jump around a little bit more here. So I think there's a lot of nuggets to pull from it, but it'll be a little bit harder to find a structure. Um, I will say what stands out to me as we read it, though, is Paul brings every single thing back to the gospel. It's so much a part of what he cares about and his passion and his life that he really can't talk about anything without talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pay attention to that as you read. Yeah. And and, and there's like classic coffee cup verses like scattered throughout this book. And uh, sometimes the context goes, well, Okay, that that changes a little bit how I think about that verse, but they're still true verses. They're still mm-hmm. right in what Paul says. They just uh, are in unique context that maybe we don't always think about. Yeah. And so we get the greeting, and which feels like a pretty traditional greeting from Paul. Uh, he he's saying he's an apostle. He even points out that by the will of God, which is an important defense of himself, um, and and he reminds them this group that he's even, even he'll point out the last time they visited him was really hard. We got there in the reading to even this week, but um, he still calls them saints. Like with all the mess that Corinth is, Paul's still opening this with saints, which is so interesting to read Galatians where Paul doesn't start with any of these sort of like traditional openings um, or, or compliments towards the people. Um, and, and Paul's just angry and frustrated around the legalism that's going on in Galatia. And then we get to these letters both to first and second Corinthians. And, and it feels like Paul's much more gracious and patient and willing to work through them stumbling forward versus the legalism of, of the book of Galatians. Yeah. So he starts talking about comfort right away, which mm-hmm. seems like a bit of an odd start. Uh, the word paraclesis, this idea of like bringing aid and comfort and a word that's used with all members of the Trinity. So God, I mean, both Father Jesus and the Holy Spirit get spoken of multiple times as being comforters. Like this is something that's essential to God. Um, And Paul starts speaking of it around his relationship to them, his relationship to others. And he's like, well, we are comforted by by God himself to be comforters to others. Mm -hmm. And and Paul's clear, like even if I'm suffering, like that, that brings more consolation, more comfort from God in the process. And in my sufferings, like, I want you to know, like, they're for you guys. Like, and there seems to be some accusation amongst the church that like Paul's suffering, therefore he's not, he's not 
he's not for you and you shouldn't really listen to him or something along those lines. Like only us who are not suffering and are doing well and all that, like listen to us. And Paul's like, no, no, no. My suffering has a purpose. And my the purpose is actually to bring you comfort. It's for your benefit that I suffer, whether because it makes Paul a better minister, whether they see that God's sufficient in Paul, even in his suffering, whatever it may be, it's ultimately a benefit to this church. And so uh, Paul's bringing context saying like, look, whatever I'm suffering, whether it's because of persecution, whether it's physical ailments, whatever it may be, Paul's saying, look, look, this is to benefit you guys that, that I'm in this suffering. Yeah. You know, the, the Corinthians really considered Paul's suffering to be a disqualifier for his faith, but he's really arguing throughout this whole book, this theme of suffering, um, and that it it's an indicator of genuineness of faith. And I think, you know, sometimes we hit walls in our own faith when we experience great suffering, and we don't understand why God allows it. And I cannot speak to every circumstance, but I think this book will remind us that as followers of Christ, we are not exempt from suffering, and it's offering uh, that suffering that we experience is going to be the best testimony of the work and the truth of Christ. So when you, or are, if you are suffering right now, come back to this passage and remember that God is the Father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. And then pray that you can find that comfort in Him and offer the same to others. So I just think this passage is really amazing when we consider how to face suffering and how different it is than those who don't know God. And again, Paul kind of like launches into the application at the beginning, which is interesting. But but he's arguing, I think probably from a previous conversation, but um, consider the fact that that suffering oftentimes is an indicator of the genuineness of our faith. And he speaks of just something that happened in Asia that was really bad. And at some point, Paul even brings the, the good out of that, saying like, look, we, we remembered, we, we remember that God is the one who brings people up from death. Like, even though we were close to death, that God rescues from death. And even even in this story, it's, it's, it's as if he's reminding them, like, we had to rely on God and God alone in the midst of that. And so even our suffering, like, this is what came out of it, reminding them that suffering could be good. Um and so Paul seemed to have some sort of change of plans in a visit in the past, and it's causing um, the folks in Corinth to to either doubt him or to feel like uh, there's something something not to trust in Paul, whatever it may be. And so he's reminding him right from the get go. Look, I didn't have a hidden agenda. I didn't have like special meanings or deception. Like I said, these plain and simple things. And and um, if you put some of the pieces together, it seemed like Paul was uh, going to go to Macedonia. And he said this at the end of First Corinthians 16 and, and have this trip. And he was going to stop through Corinth and on the way back, stop again. And it seems like on a stop through that things didn't go very well uh, when he visited for whatever reason, whether there were accusations against him, whether there was still strife, whatever it may have been. And Paul ended up not stopping through again, actually giving them another letter uh, and, and um, this severe letter that he speaks of at Second Corinthians 3 um, that, that they received. And Paul has now heard back from them and is writing one more time. And so uh, there seems to be something about Paul not visiting that had been a bit of a sticking point for the folks in Corinth. And he's trying to explain to them kind of what happened, why he didn't show up and that ultimately God's the God of timelines and Paul can have intentions and and goals, but God's, God's the promise maker and he fulfills his promises. Yeah. So Paul's not flaky. Uh, but God is directing him. And I just love the um, the passage near the end that talks about how God has put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Don't forget that this is who we are. And this is who Paul saw the Corinthians to be. People who 
who have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. He is only good. And this is the down payment of what we get to look forward to and anticipate receiving in heaven. So it's just this tiny little verse in the midst of Paul's description, but it's so powerful when we understand that we have this Holy Spirit as a deposit and a guarantee of our inheritance to come. Yeah, it almost feels like there's these sprinkling throughout some of these parsing out conversations of Paul being like, but we're still good. Like, I need you to know you're saints. I need you to know you have the Holy Spirit. Like, we're still in this together. And I need you to know, like, we'll be all right. We're, yeah. we're going to continue on. Um, and it's that connecting back to the gospel, no matter like, yeah, that's what, that's what makes them okay. Like, yeah. Somehow he can connect it to the gospel, which is awesome. Yeah. What makes them good is that they, they do share that. Um, and, and then we hear about sort of this unnamed man. Maybe it's the guy from First Corinthians five. Maybe it's somebody else. But um, there was there was someone who um, didn't grieve Paul specifically, but has, had caused havoc amongst the church, and they dealt with it. That there was some sort of punishment, but but they sort of tell him like, "Look, you can you can restore him. Like, remind him that you love him. Like, the, and and their failure to to love somebody that's repentant is somebody that." Is something that ultimately Satan can use uh, in 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 against them, and so even John Calvin around this section says, "There's nothing more dangerous than to give Satan a chance to reduce a sinner to despair. Whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands." And so Paul Paul's telling them, "Look, whatever whatever happened, whatever sort of like." Um, calling out sin and somebody coming to repentance. It seems like the church hasn't really welcomed that person back in. And Paul's like, no, you need to, you need to reconcile with that person. Yeah. When we hold on to unforgiveness, we are being used and we are being manipulated by Satan. But when we forgive, he loses all power. So forgiveness, remember, is so much more oftentimes about us than it is the individual who wronged us or who sinned against us. So consider that. Consider the fact that if you are holding unforgiveness about someone, you are being outwitted by Satan. Yeah. And then uh, Paul speaks of an open door, uh, which historically in, in a lot of ways I hear people talk about like open door, God opens doors for you to go through. And but Paul goes, there was an open door for me to go through, but I didn't go because I didn't feel easy about it because of Titus. And so uh, sometimes um, we should question a little bit of that theology that, hey, circumstances worked out. So therefore it was like a my obedience to God's will. It's like, maybe. Uh, and so, uh, but Paul goes into the section to talk about this image that the Corinthians certainly would have known of this sort of almost like an imperial march. And and the imperial march, the, the Caesar, whoever it would have been, would have showed up to town marching in with his various people and they would burn incense and do this kind of things. And, and Jesus, or Paul, Paul sort of taking that picture of going, no, that's what Jesus is doing right now. And we're part of that crowd. Paul's like, I'm, I'm one of the people in that crowd. And there's incense, and the incense is, is going off. And that incense is the knowledge of who Jesus actually is. And there are those who get it, and it's it's like life to them. And for some, those who are perishing, it smells like death. It smells like rot. It smells like burning. And, and some some smell it, and it's good. Some smell it, and then it's bad. But G- Jesus is still going on his kingly imperial march. And so, yeah, Paul's sort of speaking to that and saying, like, we're a part of that. We're not peddling the message. We're not trying to, to do personal gain. We're just a part of God's in, imperial march, triumphal march into a city. Yeah. So as we live our lives in submission to God through our words and our action, the fragrance of God is going to be spread. And to believers, this is going to be life. And to the perishing, this sort of upside down nature of how we live is going to feel like death. But remember, we do not define our faith in terms of successes or numbers or worldly categories, but it's defined by serving others, dying to our own desires and submitting to God in all things. 
and Paul gets uh, pretty defensive. He suddenly turns, makes his turn. It seems like uh, the folks in Corinth have been asking, like, hey, um, do you have letters that sort of give give you the authority to do what you do, Paul? And Paul, Paul just flips it on them, being like, you guys, you guys are my letter of authority. How? Because God has written the letter and he did it on your hearts, which is what Jeremiah promised in the first place. This writing on your hearts is almost as Paul was saying, like, I am a pen. I was the pen in the hand of God to write the letter of recommendation. That is you guys, you converts, you church. Um, you are my letter. This is the approval that what I'm doing is right. And so um, he's, he's flipping it on them and, and, and in a way that sounds kind of peeved around them wanting some sort of special letter. And so, um, and then he gets, starts getting into this uh, comparison of Moses and Jesus, that Moses oversaw this old law, that um, Moses would go up to the mountain, his face would glow, and he would have to veil his face and hide it from this crowd. And, and Paul uses that story to kind of talk about the old law versus the new law. That old law was 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 ultimately about death, a, a glory that fades, a glory that never stays, and and a glory that was only on Moses. And we now have have Jesus, who is more glorious himself. That old thing uh, was nothing compared to this new thing. It's kind of dull in comparison. And and that mosaic law, that that old way of living, it was death. It, it never really brought life. But now we have life. And he starts talking about this unveiling. Like we we get to see this with unveiled faces. We get to see God Himself. We get to have this sort of face to face. So as much as Moses was was changed by this encounter with God, we now, all of us who, who that call, call ourselves followers of Jesus, we get to have this sort of unveiled moment where the glory of God sort of rubs off, rubs off on us. And as we see him, as we behold him, we become more and more like him. We start reflecting that glory, just like Moses kind of reflected the glory of God, but we get to do it unveiled and we all get to do it. And it's so good. It's such a beautiful picture to think through the sanctification story. Yeah. I mean, remember what good news this is. Don't take for granted that you've maybe read it before, that we are incapable of producing faithful ministry in and of ourselves. The only way we can do this is through and by the Spirit. We are insufficient, but God is sufficient in us. We are hopeless and afraid, but Christ makes us bold and gives us hope. We are enslaved to our own fears and desires, but when we come to know the Lord, we are set free because the Holy Spirit indwells in us. And then the passage ends with this great reminder that we are being transformed into the same image of this glorious God that we see. I think this is a really good picture of sanctification. Oftentimes what I come back to and pray when I'm thinking about sanctifications, while while these things of the boldness and sufficiency of Christ are true in us. They don't always um, immediately all become true of us, but little by little, God is conforming us into his own image where we are going to even better represent the glory of Christ until one day, of course, it's completely fulfilled in heaven. Uh, but but verse 18 is a great way uh, about being transformed into the image of Christ. It's just a great prayer to pray as uh, you are seeking growth and spiritual maturity. Yeah, I, I... I, I kind of use this verse a lot in some of my one-on-one conversations around accountability because I think sometimes we, we focus on not doing certain things and doing certain things and we focus on sort of the work of things we're trying not to do or things to do. And, and Paul's sort of picture here is, no, 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 you want to be more like Christ. If, if you want your life to, to start looking like him more, your goal, the thing you should ch- chase after is just beholding him more and more and more. And, and the more you are 
in his presence. The more you are uh, thinking about him, praying with him, doing these sort of things, the more he is going to do the work of actually changing you. And so um, it's making sure we we set our eyes on Jesus and not setting our eyes on the the works that we're trying to do or not do. And so, um, yeah, it's a a good picture for us to to sometimes remember um, what it looks like to constantly move towards Jesus and be conformed more in that direction. Yeah. And then uh, he reminds him again that he was not being deceptive, that he was keeping everything out in the open, unlike some of the other charlatans that have come along. Um, and, and he's sort of playing here where he's like, look, if, if, you, if people can see it and understand it, it's not, we're not, we, weren't, we weren't trying to hide it. Like if people can't see it, sorry, if people can't see it, they don't understand it. It's not because we're hiding it. It's simply because they're veiled. They, they are blinded. They can't see what we're trying to do. We can't see the gospel I'm trying to bring and this upside down nature of this gospel. So they can't understand what suffering is really about. And they can't understand um, what, what power and might actually looks like in the kingdom of God because they're veiled and only God can bring light to that. Only God could shine in the darkness. So if they reject this teaching, it's, it's because of their blindness, not because we're we're hiding things or tricking them or anything like that. It is, it is that and that alone. Yeah. I really like the theme of light in this section of how the gospel is light, the glory of Christ is light, the image of God is light uh, and how the Lord is the one who, who gives us light to see and understand. Um, and how Paul remains encouraged in his ministry. If I were in his shoes, I would be super discouraged and bummed out with everything he's gone through with the Corinthians, but he, takes it all back to Jesus and remembers that all he does is for Jesus' sake. And while he wants to see the fruit um, and the blessing of, of faithfulness in the Corinthian church, his obedience is not for that. It's it's for Christ alone. Yeah. And, and this is one of the various passages that would lead me to a, a more kind of reformed understanding of things, trusting the sovereignty of God, even yeah. in, even in the, the outgoing of the gospel, that um, only God could bring light to darkness. Only God can bring sight to the blind. Only God can take the veil away from people. And, and so um, this this section would certainly paint that picture of just God's sovereignty even over those things. And so, um, yeah, that would just cause me to, to, to lean that much more, um, even in my sharing of the gospel, to go like, I'm going to share it and I'm going to do, I'm going to be the sower to just spread the gospel seed everywhere. Um, but God's got to open eyes and I trust him to do that. Yeah. So next week, Old Testament, New Testament, what are we looking for? So Old Testament, you know, we've talked a lot about Solomon's wisdom, and we read a lot of Proverbs and Psalms that talk about wisdom. So you're going to be in Ecclesiastes this next week. So think about how uh, how Ecclesiastes approaches wisdom and how that contributes to how you would define wisdom in a biblical way. So look for all those threads and connections of wisdom. And in the New Testament, we're going to talk about the body, the person being the temple of God. And so again, try to make some connections with what we're reading about Solomon's temple, with what we know about the tabernacle from Exodus, and uh, increase your understanding of what it means to be God's temple in New Testament times. Yeah, and for me... Um one of the essential questions Ecclesiastes is like processing or thinking through is really what does look life look like without God in it? So everything mm-hmm. under the sun as a writer would phrase that. And so as you, as you read, think through how the author is, is answering that is processing that the sort of picture of almost a, a godless universe and, and how we, we would view it and how we would think about it. And then new Testament, um, Paul's still contrasting ideas and some, some, big ones at that. And so as you read the larger section, he'll make an argument of kind of like use this analogy to, 
it's almost like a household good that we're kind of like, but then he also goes, but, but you also have this ministry responsibility and it's huge. It's a big one. And so, um, see how he's comparing, contrasting some, some lowly things we do, but also these, these vital tasks that we have, um, as followers of Jesus. So, uh, that's it for this week. Thanks everybody. Thanks y'all.